Good morning. Getting longer and longer to get around that. Um, we're glad you're here this morning, and, and uh, we actually have uh, one more special thing that we need to do apart from the message. I don't know how special that's going to be, but we'll, we'll, you know, that remains to be seen. I hope you heard what you just sang. Who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought for my broken heart? I hope you listened as you sang it. I hope you sang it to yourself. I hope you sang it about yourself and you recognize that, that when the, you were in your deepest need, when the only thing that would meet your need was the death of God's only son, God did not spare his own son, but gave him freely for us all. That's a powerful, powerful truth. And in that light, uh, we have a commissioning service this morning. The elders are going to come up. Stephen Jen Hagen will be leaving on Tuesday for the Philippines. Um, you, you can just... Don't come up here, but... Um, Stephen Jen will be leaving for the Philippines uh, on, on Tuesday afternoon and making their way back there. You may recall that we commissioned Michaela Hagen, uh, and uh, Stephen Jen Hagen name should uh, resonate with you there. Stephen Jen are Michaela's mom and dad, and they'll be going back to a, a different ministry than Michaela uh, is uh, involved in right now, but I, 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 <laughs> I can't tell you how thrilled I am. I, I mean, it hurts to see them go. It, it's the, it's a, we're living the dream, you and I. But um, I, I, I hope you noticed that we, we commissioned someone and sent them out in January, and now we're commissioning someone and sending them out in February, and that means that March is just around the corner, and those of you that have heard the rumor that we're just going to start, we're just going to draft somebody and send them out, I just, I just want to say that that's absolutely true. That's exactly what we're going to do, because if you can't recruit them, you draft them, right? That's the way it works, so there's going to be a big lottery, next, and then we'll send you out, and we'll, you know, wouldn't that be great? I'd love it if the day would come when every month we're sending somebody, sending somebody back or sending somebody there in order to, to take this good news that we hold so tightly to all around the world. I've asked Steve if he'd take a little bit of time at the end of this uh, commissioning service and, uh, and just share with us a little bit what they're, we're going back to, uh, and then we'll get to the message. So buckle your seatbelts. It's going to get bumpy. Okay, we're going to come around Steve and Jen and, and just pray for him. And uh, w would you stand with us? And just as a sign, that, as the body of Christ here at the Potter's House, that we are sending them back. This is not the first time they've been gone, but sending them back to the field where God's called them. And, and if you know Steve and Jen, um, what a blessing it's been for us to get to know them and them be here. But what a blessing it is for them to go back and be with the picture. people God's called them to, to minister to. So. Join your hearts with all of us in prayer as we lift them up and, and, and in God's grace send them back to the Philippines. Lord, we lift up to you, Steve and Jen. Lord, we thank you for your call on their life, first of all, as your children, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of your son. Lord, thank you for that call on their life. And then, Lord, thank you for their call to be husband and wife and to be fa father and mother. And then, Lord, for your call, uh, Lord, on their life to... to Take your word, take the gospel, 
the blessed gospel of our blessed God to the Philippines. Lord, thank you for the work that they've already done. And Lord, now we commend them to your, the word of your grace and to your power as they go back to the Philippines. Lord, encourage them, empower them, uplift them. Lord, I pray that you would do through them at this time back in the Philippines more than they could ever ask or think, Lord, because you're in that business of doing more than we could ever ask or think. Lord, I pray that they would see things happen that could only be explained by you. Lord, I know that's their heart, that you would be glorified in and through them. Lord, in those days of discouragement, remind them that you are the God of all the universes, that you are eternal, immortal, all-wise. And Lord, you have a plan even in the tough days. Lord, continue to, to bring people around them to serve on their team, bring unity on their team. Um, Lord, bring great wisdom as they go forth to continue to date the gospel to the people of the Philippines. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you all. Um, since we've been speaking at different churches every Sunday uh, while we've been back, we haven't been able to worship with you often, but we've been encouraged through the times we've had to connect, whether it's through meals or in life groups, and it's been clear to us that you guys are partners in the work, and it's clear that we're not alone. While we've been here in the States visiting churches and supporters, the work has very much continued over there in the Philippines through our tribal partners. That's meant a lot of late night and early morning online meetings. Um, so while it's been a tiring time in the States and it's incredibly difficult to say goodbye, especially to our boys, you guys know we're headed over there to where Michaela is, so we'll see her again, but we're excited to get back into the same time zone as our tribal partners and to get back to work. Paul often in his letters uh, asked for prayers for his team and those he ministered to. He would tailor them to the situation he was facing at the time, and so we thought it would be appropriate as we're headed back again to ask you to join us in the work through prayer. Um, and as we're going back, we got a lot coming up in the first couple of months. In the first couple of days that we're back, it will be consumed with settling back in. A house left in the tropics for several months tends to have a lot of issues. We found out that termites got into one of the rooms in our house while we were gone. And experience tells us there will be lots of mold and other sometimes live surprises um, in the house. We also have immigration appointments, some banking, which is a lot more complicated there than here, and need to buy me a car. Uh, so less than a week after we land, um, I'll be heading up, down to, heading down to be called for a joint seminar with our Bukalo, Mangyan, and Agta tribal partners. Um, I'll also have several strategic meetings with them for the various groups. Uh, to help them sort through the things that have come up uh, over the last couple of months. We have a lot of new work going on, whether it's with the Tribal Bible College or the church plants that they're leading now, and the Livelihood Church Planner training that we've been building the uh, buildings for. And along with that comes a lot of problems to work through together, and this working together is all new for them. While he's gone down in Bicol, I'll be leading a two-day culture and language training for new American missionaries that have arrived over there while we've been here. Um, then we also have a couple that's arriving from the States on a vision trip, and I'll fly with them to Bicol to meet up with Steve. Brandon and Macy are considering coming to join our team full-time, so they're coming to see the work and seek his will. Um, on our way back from Bicol, we'll stop and visit some of the Tagalog language students that I supervise, and I have a really difficult conversation with a uh, few of them that aren't making progress. 
Uh, one of the other ministries we have while we're there, besides our tribal work, is helping, um, uh, is helping with training as um, the Filipino uh, Baptist Convention send out missionaries uh, to other countries. So for two weeks in March, uh, we'll be on another island helping to lead a two-week pre-field training for new missionaries who are preparing to go to the nations. Then in early April, we'll head back down to Beacle with several key personnel from Send Relief Organization and Oklahoma Convention uh, to, to visit our projects with the AGTA and also look at um, partnership opportunities for them with the Philippine conventions there. Uh, we have a livelihood and skills training combined with community development and church planning training that's funded by Send Relief. So we're excited about how this project could result in many more Agta churches being planted. And all those things that are happening that you can be praying for happen in the first six weeks that we're back. So we're definitely feeling the need for your prayers um, as we get back. Um, Steve also asked for our tribal partners for some specific requests from them. And this is what they asked prayer for. Pastor, nagsisimula pa lang sa pagbahagi. Um, probably English. Ah, better. Okay. Well, we'll do the English version. Um, so the new Agta pastors are just beginning to share the word of God. So pray for them. Uh, pray that the work among the Agta tribes will continue to expand to reach the rest of the unreached groups and areas. Pray that the Agta churches and leaders in the Bicol Tribal Church Association will grow in faith and unity. I wanted to add a little note here on that prayer request. Um, in Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that savage wolves will come in among them from the outside and that there would be those who rise up from amongst them. He's talking about false teachers and the danger they bring to believers and the church. The Agda churches are being birthed in a place where false teaching abounds. So it's something they're facing right from the very beginning as their churches are formed. Uh, but we're also beginning to see that those are starting to come up from within them as well. And they need to be careful and prepared to continue growing in faith and not be distracted um, by false teaching. So this is really a key request for them. They are want to grow in their faith and also their unity but, of course, we want to pray that their unity is in the truth from God's word that will save them from all the lies of the enemy. In addition to their requests, we're also asking for health and strength for us in the next couple weeks, as they'll be pretty nuts, actually. Um, especially pray that Steve's asthma doesn't flare up again. Then, in addition to praying for the other things we mentioned, um, we would ask you to pray specifically with us while Brandon and Macy are visiting in early March, that God would give them clarity as to where he's calling them, one of our biggest needs right now is teammates, so our prayer is that he would call them to join our team and hopefully some others as well. So I want to say thanks again uh, for being the kind of church that has a vision beyond your own walls, uh, beyond your own community. Thank you for caring about what God is doing around the world and for getting involved as he leads you. Thank you for loving us and encouraging us. Know that we're praying for you as you press on the work here at the lake. And maybe we'll see some of you over there soon, maybe even this summer. Come see us in the back after the service and grab a prayer card if you don't have one yet or sign up if you're not getting our updates so you can continue to pray with us as we go. Thanks for standing behind us, Potter's House. We, uh, we talked uh, before Michaela left about holding the ropes as these folks go down uh, into this pit. And uh, I, just so you know, from the sake of, for the sake of perspective, 
uh, Kayla's leaving for the first time to work as a missionary, uh, you know, apart from her parents and being involved in a whole brand new thing, uh, is a, it'll cause tension, you know. It, uh, it, it, uh, it can even bring up some fears, I suppose. Uh, but it, it, I, I don't think it's any easier to go back to ministry. Kayla was walking into something that she just wasn't sure what it was like. Steve and Jen are going back to something that they've been involved with for years, and uh, so they know all of the obstacles that are there in front of them, except for the new ones that the enemy will bring along as, as time goes on. So do be praying for them. Uh, ask God uh, to, to meet their needs every day. Ask God to draw them so close to himself that that, uh, well, that, that will be the new theme of their life. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And I, I just want to say at this point that, uh, that uh, um, I'm not going to ask you to look at your watch, but uh, I, d- I don't have as much time as I normally have, and normally I go over what you might expect that I would, but I, I do want you to know that I, I, can, I can promise you that we will be out of here by 2 a.m. And uh, no, we'll, I, it, it's, a, it's a vital message because it's our last time in First Timothy. And so I, I, I really did try to cut it down knowing what was coming up this Sunday. And it just uh, wasn't as possible as I would have liked. So bear with me. I'll move as quickly through it as I can. But I don't want to go so quickly that uh, you're drinking from the fire hose as we go. So... Be strong in grace. And uh, that, that verse, that idea, that sentiment is actually going to come out in 2 Timothy, which we will begin next week. But for right now, this is part 41 in this two-letter series, and it's entitled Godless Chatter and False Knowledge, and we'll be unpacking 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Before we get to that, take a minute while, we've all, while we're all here and just... Say hello to everyone. Say hello to somebody. Don't, tra- don't travel. Just, you know. <laughs> you can stand up if you want to. I, that's, uh... to be the guy that's breaking this stuff up Sundays that I speak. I know you enjoy seeing one another, and, and I hope that you'll continue that after, the, after our, our time together this morning. I hope that you'll stick around and, and share with one another and, and talk about what God's doing in your heart and life. Uh, two weeks ago, Brian walked us through verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6, where Paul tells us that God lives in unapproachable light. And because of that, he's worthy of a heart response from us that prompts us to stand in awe in the light of his indescribable greatness. And as Brian pointed out back then, it's clear that Paul was overwhelmed by the awesomeness of God. Now, we know that Paul was a man who had incredibly heavy responsibilities, and we also know that Paul was besieged by concerns for Timothy and for the church there at Ephesus where Timothy was involved teaching and training and discipling the elders. 
The church at Ephesus was in the process of drifting away from the faith because they were being led astray by false teachers. And we know that to be true because Paul keeps returning to that idea as he moves from one thought to another in this letter that he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul was concerned, of course, that he would lose Timothy to the false teaching. And Paul wanted to prevent that, even if he couldn't prevent the loss of the church there at Ephesus. And I don't know about you, but I'd be inclined to expect that all those responsibilities and concerns would be the things that would overwhelm Paul. I might expect that Paul might have been overwhelmed by sadness over how things were going there in Ephesus. And I might also have expected that Paul's sadness would have turned to anger as his frustration built over the choice that the church at Ephesus had been making to turn away from the truth that Paul and Timothy had been teaching for so long there in that place. But uh, I've known personally the frustration of watching people walk away and, and embrace false teaching. I've, watched, I've known personally that uh, I've seen that happen with it in my own life and in my own experience. So I know the frustration that it must have caused Paul. I've known the sadness of, of, of watching people that I love make the choice to walk away into false teaching. And I've known the frustration of not being able to help them to see the danger that lies ahead of them in the direction that they're headed. And I know that Paul felt that same sadness as he watched the church at Ephesus lose their way. And I know that he felt the very same frustration as he tried to help Timothy find a way to get the church back on track. The point that I'm trying to make here is that Paul felt the sadness and frustration, but he was, he was not overwhelmed by the sadness and frustration. Remarkably, Paul was overwhelmed by worship. In response to God's glory, instead of being overwhelmed by sadness and frustration in response to his worries over the people from the, the, the church there at Ephesus who had begun to follow the false teachers. The church at Ephesus was hemorrhaging. But in verses 15 and 16, Paul calls us to take three deep breaths, to look away from the problems that surround us, and to pause and consider the awesomeness of God. And that's because no matter how dark and dangerous things may be around us, no amount of darkness or danger can ever overshadow or overcome God's glorious light. Brian, that's something that's been especially good for me this, this past week, good for my heart, because Paul was sad and concerned and frustrated, but he was not overwhelmed by his sadness, concern, and frustration. He was instead overwhelmed by... by the God who lives in unapproachable light. And because he was overwhelmed by that, he saw no recourse but to just let loose. Woo-hoo! And worship. That's the, what, what he did on those verses that you read. And, and during this past week, I've chosen to follow Paul's example as I've chosen to turn my worry time into worship time. So, Brian, thanks for that. Because uh, even if that was all that you said, that much of the message was extremely helpful. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that Brian had quite a lot to say about what it means to be rich in this world, as though he's an expert. I've, <laughs> I've, I've gone to lunch with him. He's, he's, I don't know where he... Anyway, you understand being rich in this world. I loved it <coughs> that he said he didn't want to offend anyone, but he also didn't want to not say the things that the Scripture says, especially because there are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. As Brian pointed out, one of the main things that God's word says about wealth is, is that it is never 
a good reason for conceit. Because everything that we have has been given to us by God. And Paul was really clear in letting Timothy know that what God has given, God can also take away. It can be a heartbeat in either direction. And for that reason, perhaps the word given is a misnomer when it comes to wealth that God has given us. Because in reality, God has made us stewards of his wealth. It all belongs to him. And that's another reason that it's never wise to be conceited about how much wealth we have. And in the end, as Brian pointed out, our wealth is not measured by how much we have, but instead by what we are able to give. Wealth is not measured by what we have, but by what we're able to share. And that means that ultimately the only wealth that matters is the wealth that we send on ahead of us to our heavenly home. And I have to tell you that I especially appreciated what Brian said about tithing. And and this is a direct quote. The New Testament neither commands nor condemns tithing. So the wisest thing that we can do is not tithe, but instead give by the Spirit. Give what love demands. And Brian, I, I, I can tell you truthfully that I've said that same thing often, but I've not often heard someone else say it. So thank you for that as well. And for the rest of us, if you want to consider 10% as a baseline for the minimum you're going to give uh, to the church in your offering, then go for it, but don't stop there. And don't keep yourself from experiencing the truth of what Jesus taught when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, folks, it's time to move on to the passage at hand, and we can start unpacking that passage by reading it aloud together. So if you're able, please stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 to 21. Read it aloud with me if possible. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Thanks. You can take your seats with a heart of gratitude that God has shared his heart with us through his word. As we look into the story from God's Word this morning, I need to remind you that 1 Timothy is a personal letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith. And I want to further remind you that Timothy was discipling the elders there in the church at Ephesus when he received this letter from Paul. Paul himself had left Timothy in Ephesus to finish establishing the church while he, Paul, went into Macedonia to plant some new churches there. As we've been saying all along, Paul's very concerned about the church at Ephesus because the Judaizers, the legalizers, the the false teachers had been leading people astray. So I think it's important here at the end of 1 Timothy this week, as we end it this week and begin 2 Timothy next week, that we establish a context for Paul's relationship with the church and leadership there in Ephesus because it will be highlighted as we go through 2 Timothy. And of course, I intend to establish that connection by telling you a story, a true story from God's Word. At the beginning of this story, Paul has just spent three months traveling through Greece where he had been teaching, and the Jews, in the meantime, have been busy making plans to kill him. Surprise, surprise. Paul has managed to slip from their grasp by heading deeper into Macedonia. In other words, he was going from Asia into Europe. Paul had stayed in Philippi for the festival of unleavened bread, and he'd made up his mind to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And by far, 
The easiest way to get from Philippi to Jerusalem is over water, south across the, uh, the Aegean along the coast of Asia. So Paul boarded a ship that was headed in that direction. They sailed for a while, and then the ship harbored for a few days in a little town called Miletus. Paul wanted to visit with the elders from the church in Ephesus, some 30 miles away from Miletus, but, but Paul's last visit to Ephesus had ended in a riot, and Paul didn't have time for a riot right now, not that anybody ever does, but he didn't have time for a riot right now if he was going to make it to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. So rather than go to Ephesus himself, he sent a messenger to request that the elders from the church there in Ephesus meet him in Miletus, a journey of about 30 miles one way. And Paul remained there in Miletus as he waited for their arrival. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 38. When the elders of the church at Ephesus arrived, Paul reminded them of his last visit there in Ephesus and the mess he had found when he arrived there. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the very first day, I was in the province of Asia, Paul said to the elders. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears during that time of severe testing as my Jewish opponents tried to kill me, Paul said. You also know that I've never hesitated to preach or teach anything that would be helpful to you as I talked publicly and from house to house. I taught both Jews and Gentiles that they must turn in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit of God is telling me to go to Jerusalem, Paul went on. And I have no real idea of what's going to happen to me there except the Spirit of God warns me that I will face prisons and hard, prison and, and hardships when I finally arrive. But that's okay. Because I consider my life worth nothing to me. And my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And I know, Paul continued, that none of you to whom I've preached about the kingdom of God will ever see my face again. That's why I want it clearly understood today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you because I have not hesitated to tell you the whole will of God. Since this would be the last time Paul would see these men who had been so important to him, he had some last words for them. Keep watch over yourselves, he said, and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Paul also had some warnings for them. I know that after I leave here, Paul said, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That was frightening enough, but Paul added, even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw people after them, to follow them. So be on your guard, Paul said. And then he added, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So I'm committing you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among God's people. I never coveted anything that any one of you owned, and I worked hard to support myself while I was with you. I even helped other people who were in need while I was there in Ephesus. I did all this because I remembered the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, it is better to give than to receive. And Paul had finished talking to the elders. 
He knelt down with all of them right there in the beach and prayed with them. And after they prayed together, they all wept and embraced him and kissed him on the cheek. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship and stood there on the shore as the ship cast off to continue its journey south to Jerusalem. And that is the story from God's Word. Well, it's time to finish First Timothy. And in that light, I want you to know that there's something quite distinctive about the way First Timothy ends. In fact, there's something that happens here at the end of First Timothy that only happens one other time in all of Paul's epistles. And I think it's important that we look at that this morning. And to get there, we'll need to look one more time at the benediction that we find in, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6, these verses that, that Brian taught on earlier. He, oh, listen to this. He is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. And folks, I'd just like to say this morning that those verses would have been an excellent way to end 1 Timothy. Now, I could have I lived off of that for three whole months if Paul had ended 1 Timothy that way. I say that because Paul really truly was quite settled in the habit of ending his letters with greetings and words of encouragement. Words like the ones that we just found in verses 15 and 16. The, the words that, that Brian taught on two weeks ago. In fact, for the sake of a baseline reference... Let's look at the last words in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Christ Jesus, and that's how he ended, Romans. His longest letter, he ended his longest letter on a high note. Ta-da! <laughs> and as someone who spent a fair amount of time studying Paul's epistles, I can tell you that he's very consistent with that, with that practice of ending his letters on a high note. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't sing it again. So Paul is very consistent in ending his letters on a high note. And, and as I've already said, there are two exceptions to that rule that Paul seems to have made for himself as he's inspired by the Spirit of God. One of the places where Paul departs from that pattern is found in the letter to the Galatians. You may remember that Paul was in the habit of dictating his letters to an amanuensis, someone who wrote down what Paul had to say. We think that his vision was poor. We can't, we can't be sure of that. Perhaps that's the thorn in the flesh that, that he talked about and, and that that was the reason he chose to dictate his letters rather than pen them himself. So Paul dictated all his letters with the exception of Galatians. Paul wrote Galatians with his own hand probably because he couldn't find an amanuensis, someone to write down what he said. And that's part of the reason we think that Paul's eyesight had failed. He even asked the Galatians to notice what large letters he used as he wrote this, as he wrote this epistle. And that's why I love this picture here. You can actually see 
The large letters, if you look closely, you can see the large letters he's putting on the parchment as he writes. And that could mean that his vision was bad or that perhaps something had impaired his fine motor skills. In other words, we don't really know why he chose to write the letter to the Galatians himself rather than finding the time to take someone to write it down for him. But I think personally that time was really the issue here. Paul had something that he desperately needed to say to the churches in Galatia. I believe he was deeply motivated by his concern for those churches. And he simply didn't think that it was wise to wait until someone could take dictation. And that's why he picked up a parchment and a quill and wrote the letter to the Galatians with his own hand. And what was causing Paul that concern? Well, we could take the time to study through Galatians. Or you could go back to 2013 and the podcast there when we studied Galatians together as a church. Or you could let me sum up Galatians for you and you could then read and study the book uh, during the week this week and and you'd you'd know whether or not I was accurate. And by way of summary, I, I can say that perhaps you won't be surprised to hear that the Judaizers, the legalizers, the false teachers were very active in the churches there in Galatia. And you shouldn't be surprised to hear that that group of legalists had led many of the followers of Jesus astray in those churches there in Galatia. Because if you listen to teachers who promote legalism, they present what they believe as though it would be a harbor where you can be safe by being more in control of your life. Because when you succeed at keeping the law, well, that that feels good. You you can feel good about yourself at that point. The problem is that no one can succeed at keeping the whole law. And that failure doesn't feel good. In fact, I've seen it lead to deep depression in some and even suicide in others. The truth is, the people who teach legalism are not inviting you into the harbor. They're luring you toward the rocks where you will be shipwrecked. So let's be clear here, folks. This is not a simple difference of opinion. Legalism is false teaching and it is deadly. And it is the very thing that Paul spoke against as he wrote the six chapters to the Galatians. You see... There were people who were trying to get the followers of Jesus there in Galatia to turn back to keeping the law and to turn back to Judaism as a means of living the Christian life. The legalizers were telling people to focus on obeying God's commands instead of simply obeying the Spirit of God who was living within them. And Paul's clear. God gave us his law. Listen to this. God gave us his law to point out to us that we cannot keep his law. And that's a beautiful thing because the failure that God built into the law is the very thing that drives us to Christ. When I realize that I cannot keep this law that God has given me, I have no choice but to turn to a Savior, the one who has died in my place, been punished on my behalf. Legalism tells you that if you just keep God's law, you'll be able to establish your own righteousness, which sounds empowering for us, but the problem is That once you establish your own righteousness, hear this, once you establish your own righteousness, you will have to ignore all the scriptures that teach us about our need for God to give us his righteousness by means of the sacrifice of Christ. And keep this in mind, God teaches us about his righteousness through the law, but he gives us his righteousness by grace through faith. At least that's what Paul clearly believed. 
And that's what prompted him to write to the churches in Galatia, to tell them to stop turning back to the law as a means of becoming righteous and instead accept Christ's righteousness by faith. And if Paul's opinion is not enough on this one, well, then think for a moment about the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. These are Jesus' words. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus and Paul are on the same page here. They believe the same thing. As they clearly tell us to stop trying to establish our own righteousness by trying to keep the law. And that's because no one will ever gain right standing before God by trying to keep the law. The only ones who will ever gain right relationship with God, right standing with God, are those who come to God by faith. That's the New Testament. Or to put it another way, if you were here for Hebrews, you know that we were called to leave the old covenant behind us and to pursue and embrace the new covenant that God has made with his people by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has given us his spirit. He's given his spirit to all who believe in and follow Jesus. And because of that, listen, God's laws are written on our hearts. On our very hearts. And all that God is asking for us today is that we would live moment by moment by relying on the Spirit of God to say yes to God's yes in our lives. He's not asking us to understand and live by the nearly 1,700 laws and commands in the Bible. He's only asking us to live by what the Spirit is leading us to do this moment as the Spirit of God writes God's will on our hearts every time they beat. Look what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone but on, tables of, on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us, listen, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we've seen how Paul ended his letter to the church at Rome, but we're talking about how he ended his letter to the churches in Galatia, so we need to get back to that. Remember, 
Paul's concerned about the tragedy that had happened in Galatia as the false teachers stole the truth of the gospel from those churches by teaching a false gospel. And the lying gospel was so pervasive there in Galatia that all of the churches in Galatia were in danger of losing the gospel entirely as the false teachers circled the flock like wolves to kill, hunt, and destroy the vulnerable sheep. Paul wasn't about to sit still and allow the wolves to decimate the flock. In fact, Paul held tenaciously to the truth, even to the point of being beaten, flogged, and scarred because he would not give in at all to the false teachers, to the Judaizers, to the legalizers. And that's why he wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia. He wanted to see them turn around so that they could move in the right direction again. But Remember, we're talking about how Paul ended his letter to the Galatians because Paul did something there at the end of his letter to the Galatians that he only did one other place in the 13 or 14 letters that he wrote. And now keeping in mind how Romans ended on a high note, look with me now at how we ended Galatians. See what large letters I use as I write with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised, to keep the law. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. I hope that you saw that. Instead of ending with encouraging words to the church at Galatia, Paul ends by doubling down on the, on the warning that that the Jesus followers in Galatia should have nothing to do with the Judaizers, the legalizers, the the false teachers. And that's because the legalizers are not inviting you into the harbor where you and your family can be safe. They are instead luring you onto the rocks. Shipwreck is the only thing ahead for those who sail in the direction of legalism. So Paul and Galatians with a warning about the false teachers who were at work deceiving the followers of Jesus in Galatia. And as we've mentioned There's only one other place where Paul departs from his practice of ending on a high note of praise by ending with a warning. And you shouldn't be surprised to know that the other place where that happens is right here in 1 Timothy. And the warning? Well, let's not be surprised that the warning at the end of 1 Timothy is the same as the warning at the end of Galatians. Look again at 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. I want us to take special notice of the two things from which we're supposed to turn away. You can see it there. Godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Godless chatter and false knowledge are the very definition of false teaching. Listen, true teaching grows out of a decision 
that I will be reshaped by God's word whenever God's word disagrees with me. I will be reshaped by God's word whenever God's word disagrees with me. False teaching grows out of a decision that I will reshape God's word whenever God's word disagrees with me. We try to illustrate that distance, that difference. I've been studying God's word for more than 50 years now and teaching for more than 50 years and I've given special attention to studying God's word chronologically. I see the, the benefit in that. But let's just say that, that uh, I'm just now starting out with my study of God's Word, so I decide to start with Genesis. And, and as I go through Genesis, I allow God's Word to reshape me by reshaping the way I think and reshaping the way I look at the world. As I go, I'm developing my theology. And, and by the time I've finished with the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, I may believe that I have a pretty accurate understanding of how God works in this world. In other words, I'm developing my theology. So I'm finished with the first five books of the Bible and my theology is shaping up, but, but then I get to the book of Joshua and I discover that Joshua doesn't fit into my theology. So I'm at the point where I can see that Joshua doesn't agree with me and you would think, you would think that the natural thing to do at that point would be to decide to believe God's word instead of trusting myself. You've heard me say it often. When I study God's word, my prayer is, God, I am willing to forget everything that I think I know. If only you will teach me your word by your spirit. That's a reflection of something we'll find in 2 Timothy, where in chapter 2, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And for the sake of concording that passage with the one we're looking at this morning, look at what Paul says in the very next verse. Avoid godless chatter. Does that sound familiar? Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. What are we supposed to avoid? Godless chatter. And why are we supposed to avoid godless chatter? Because those who indulge in it will grow more and more ungodly. Godless chatter is a chatter that tells you that you have the power that you need to partner with God to redeem this world. That is godless chatter because we really don't need God. He's already empowered us to do that. Avoid that because if you take God out of the equation, if you take God out of the equation on that level, that is godlessness. If God isn't in the equation anymore. So, I'm got, so if I'm going to be true to God's word and teach truthfully, but then I come to the book of Joshua and discover that Joshua disagrees with my theology, what am I going to do? I'm going to revise my theology. Forgive me for that. And I'm going to align it with God's word so that I don't have to be ashamed by not handling the word of truth correctly. But that's not what the false teachers do. When they're studying God's word, and forming their theology, and they come to the book of Joshua, for example, and discover that Joshua disagrees with their theology, they don't correct their theology. They instead disregard God's word. That's how it works. You hear what I'm saying? I'm saying that when I discover that God's word doesn't fit with my theology, I change my theology. When a false teacher discovers that God's word doesn't fit with his theology, he changes, he distorts God's word. 
He thinks of himself and his opinion more, uh, as being more valid than God's word. I'm going to change my theology to bring it into line with God's word. A false teacher will change God's word to bring it into line with his theology. I can't think of any other ways to say that. I, I hope you understand what we're talking about here. Because we all live with a theology that we've developed over the years of studying God's word and being taught God's word. So I'm asking, what should I do when I see someone distorting God's word? What should I do when I see someone distorting God's word? No, not supposed to argue with him. Paul's been clear about that. Not supposed to attack him. I'm not supposed to hit him with a baseball bat. There's a lot of things I'm not supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? What should I do when I see someone distorting or changing God's word to make it fit his or her theology? That is the simplest question of all to answer. And it's right there in 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Again, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Can you picture that for yourself? Standing in God's presence and saying, here I am, Lord. I want to be used by you to teach your word. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. If you don't avoid godless chatter, you don't avoid the godless chatter of the false teachers, but instead choose to indulge in their teaching, you will become more and more ungodly. That's God's word on the matter. And that's shipwreck. Let's be clear here. If you allow the false teachers to lure you away from the harbor and toward the rocks, you don't get to be surprised 10 years from now when your lives, the lives of your children and the lives of your grandchildren are dashed on the rocks and destroyed. Because that is the natural outcome of following that course. I, I wish that I could find a way to end this message on an encouraging note, a high note, but in the spirit of correctly handing, handling the word of truth, there is no encouragement at the end of 1 Timothy. There is only a dire warning. Paul is warning Timothy to turn away from the godless chatter and falsehoods of the false teacher, teachers. And, and Paul is insisting that Timothy warn the church at Ephesus not to follow the false teachers so that they won't be swept away to shipwreck. Paul's going to end his first letter to Timothy here. And in about three years, he'll write his second letter to Timothy. And when he writes that letter to Timothy and writes that letter to us, we'll have more insight into the church at Ephesus and how they reacted to Paul and Timothy's warning about the false teachers. By the, by the time Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, Timothy's no longer in Ephesus. So Paul will bring Timothy up to speed with what's going on there in the church at Ephesus. And I, I don't want to spoil things for you, but it's not going to be a pretty picture. Paul was executed right after he wrote 2 Timothy. And there at the end of 2 Timothy in the last days of Paul's life, Paul will paint a heartbreaking picture of the church there at Ephesus. And that's all that I'll say about that for now, other than to say that by the end of 2 Timothy, it'll be clear that Paul was correct in what he said to the elders of the church at Ephesus the last time he met with them in Acts chapter 20 when he said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw, uh, to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. In closing, let me read the passage for this morning to you one more time. Timothy, and you can fill your own name in that blank. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father in heaven, God, we pray that you would break our hearts with what breaks yours. When people who have been redeemed by your blood, when people who have heard the good news that Jesus has died for them, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day for, for them. He died so that they wouldn't have to die. He died in their place. He, he was punished so that they wouldn't have to be punished. Punished in their place. They've heard that news. And then someone walks up to them with a gospel that is not a gospel at all and draws them away. God, we know that it breaks your heart. We know that it breaks your heart. Father, help us not to be angry or vindictive or vengeful. Help us not to be anything other than worshipful in the, in the presence of, of your unapproachable light. But God, help us to be careful. Help us to warn one another and to challenge one another. Help us to stay away from those things that will corrupt us. To stay away from those things that, well, God, we just don't want the epitaph of our life to be this one, departed from the faith. Help us to stand strong and in the truth. For the sake of your glory and for our good and the good of our community, we ask you to protect our church from false teaching. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do the ready break this morning. If you'll forgive me for that. Um, instead, I want to read uh, into 2 Timothy, which will begin next week with Brian's introduction by reading something that Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy, something that we've already read. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more Ungodly. May God bless us all as we take our stand for what's real and true by God's grace for our good. Go get him, Potter's house.